I'm here with Reverend Amanda Henderson. Amanda served as Executive Director of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado since 2014. She's an ordained minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, where she has served as a pastor and continues to preach and teach in multiple communities. Reverend Henderson works as an adjunct faculty member at ILF School of Theology and Auburn Seminary and is a frequent speaker and writer on the topics of interfaith understanding, advocacy, and civic engagement. She's also a community leader in Denver, Colorado, bringing people together for healing in times of tragedy and mobilizing individuals and groups in times of justice. She has also just come out with her first book, Holy Chaos, Creating Connections in Divisive Times. And so um, I've read it. I've picked a whole bunch of excerpts out of it that we're going to be posting to the Compassionate Christianity blog and social media soon. And she's got great blurbs from people like uh, Brian McLaren and Brandon Robertson and uh, several others. So we're really pleased to have uh, Amanda with us today. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thank you. Grateful to be with you. So um, let's get started maybe to talk a little bit about your book. I mean, maybe how did it come about? Uh, since it's your first book, what kinds of you know experiences did you have in writing it? Yeah, um, it's a fun process to organize thoughts, and and I'm someone who's uh, curious and constantly learning and gathering information, and and I think that sometimes when you're a, a learner and a gatherer, it becomes difficult to um, process that down into something that can be communicated out, and so you know the process of writing a book. Uh, was for me an invitation to reflect on my own stories and to try and integrate the things that I've learned uh, from my own stories as well as from, you know, schooling and reading and uh, the world and life and advocacy into something that I can share. Uh, And my motivation behind that was that in my work with Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, I'm out in the community with people from all different backgrounds and engaged in work around political advocacy. And I find that so often we haven't taken time to reflect on what we believe and why and how we want to live in the world. And and then from there, we haven't taken the time to cultivate the skills that are necessary to be able to engage in the long haul work of social change, uh, like um, uh, confronting our fear and cultivating curiosity and learning how to mess up and how to heal after those mistakes and and how to build resilience and joy for the long haul nature of social change work. So I hope that, you know, through the process of kind of writing and reflecting that it inspires others to do their own reflecting and to eventually step out into the spaces uh, to engage in this work. Well, it's a wonderful book, and I'm really glad that you did it. Um, I, and I should have said that's from Chalice Press, and, and Chalice has really been coming out with some great books lately. So I, you know, I highly recommend this one and, you know, taking a look at some of the other um, recent uh, releases. But, um, you know, maybe how did you get a book deal? I mean, did you find an agent? Did you contact, you know, Chalice directly? I, yeah. I always find it fascinating that everyone's story about how they got their first book deal is different. Right. So partly, um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, in our conversation before this how important networks are. And I am Disciples Clergy and Chalice is a, a traditionally Disciples of Christ 
um, publishing house. So I knew the people because of the network of being a pastor in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. So I knew the folks who worked in the publishing house, and they knew my work with Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, and I think had seen me on Facebook or preaching or doing the work that I'm doing. So they had said when we would connect over the years, let us know when you have an idea, uh, you're doing interesting work. And so actually it was probably a two-year period from when I first started to say, okay, I've got an idea. And, you know, I wrote out the idea in my journal and felt like I had a good, like, outline of what was stirring for me. And so I sent that to them and uh, just in an informal email. And, and then I was like crickets for a few months. Didn't hear anything. And I thought, okay, well, <laughs> I guess, you know, that didn't hit. That's all right. And my brain keeps stirring and thinking. And I'm writing for other projects and things. And, and, and then like four months later, I hear back, all right, we really like this. Let's jump on the phone. And I was like, oh, okay, that was four months ago for me. I've moved on to 20 other things, but let me go back and read that again. <laughs> and, Where was I? Yeah, where was I with that? Um, so that process went on a little bit, and, and especially as a first-time author, uh, they started to ask questions about my own network, uh, about, you know, I, I assumed that the most important piece would be uh, the quality of my writing. <laughs> And, and I learned quickly that it's a dual thing, that it's, it's not just the quality of your writing, but it is equally uh, your ability to be able to um, connect with others out into public spaces and get your work out there and commitment to being willing to do that. And I think that honestly, that is one of the harder parts for me. Uh, and I don't think I'm alone probably in writers that enjoy the writing, but it's a different process to sell yourself. And part of writing a book is believing that your ideas are valuable enough to go out there and tell people that they are valuable. And, and that might be different also as a woman. And, you know, and in my age, I still have been taught like, uh, you know, that's egoey to say, read my book. Uh, and, and so navigating that personally was also part of the process. So Amanda, you'd be probably maybe not surprised, but I had this conversation with so many people, you know, <laughs> about the, the issue of self-promotion and not wanting to do that. Yeah. And at least for what it's worth, my advice to them has always been, you wrote a book to help people, right? To help to see something new or learn something or what have you. So, you know, there's this dirty word called marketing and really all it is, is building awareness of how you can help people because yeah. if they don't know that your book exists, they don't know how it can help them. Yeah. And you know, if you've been inspired by God to do this in the first place, then it's a holy mission, you know? So it's kind of like, don't stand in the way of letting that flow. Yeah. So oh. don't, you know, I wouldn't think of it as self-promotion, you know, or, or, or whatever. Uh -huh. Ego. It's not ego. It's not about, you know, I tell folks, it's not about you. The book yeah. is not about you. It's about, you know, letting your your work help people yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely and that's I remind myself of that and I also had a moment um between when I had like we were negotiating and I given like my full proposal and then again it was like a few months and I didn't hear anything and and I had already moved on to a couple other projects and 
when I finally heard back, all right, we're going to send you a contract, um, I was actually in the process of reading my great-grandmother's journals. So my great-grandmother, my great-grandparents homesteaded in the desert in Arizona, just north of Phoenix. And my great-grandmother kept journals uh, and wrote, and wrote poetry uh, from, like, they go from, like, the 1930s until uh, actually right after my wedding in 1997 is, like, when she stopped writing. Um, but it's, like, this thick. My aunt wow. picked them all up. That's and amazing. It's such a gift. And, and so I was reading that, and, and I thought, how could I say no to the opportunity to put my heart and thoughts out into the world um, when, like, generations, my father also writes um, and has never had anything, you know, professionally published, and that it's such a gift to have the opportunity to have your thoughts and ideas and experiences printed in, uh, you know, something that lasts. And that is the other piece that it's like, all right, this is an, an exciting opportunity that not many people really, truly have. And to really... That's another thing that everyone's surprised about is how few, and I was too, how few books um, from these different imprints get published each year. Yeah. And so for someone who is an aspiring writer, it is really difficult to get yeah. published by a traditional publisher. Yes. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it really is an honor. And, yeah. and not yeah. to be taken for granted. No. Yeah, and really appreciate it and appreciate the opportunity. So this whole interview series is um, called Faith, Hope, and Love During an Election. And so I want to talk with you a little bit about that. And um, maybe we can start by just getting your feeling about where the country stands these days. Yeah. Whoo! <laughs> I know, big, big topic, right? Yeah, um, and I, I feel a little more hopeful. I'm excited about the our new vice president candidate, so I'll jump right into that political nature of it. Um, and it's nice to feel that glimmer of like, all right, something feels like it's breaking through. Um, but honestly, obviously, the world feels like it's a mess right now. And I do have deep concerns, and I feel the gravity uh, of the moment and it feels like obviously with the pandemic and with the deep divides and with the the deep wounds of racism that are festering and being felt in particular ways and uh i feel like we're on the front of an economic tsunami uh as homelessness and unemployment and i think we have some real problems ahead um and we're in the middle of and at the same time, uh, one of my, a book that I love uh, is American, I think it's called American Revolution by Grace Lee Boggs. And I really love her work and writing. And I've been returning to it a lot during these past four years and remembering that people have been navigating hardship and navigating real deep divides in their families and their communities and their countries for centuries. And how can we learn from those who've come before us? And how can we see this time, uh, this crisis of our time as an opportunity and an opportunity to 
see clearly at the wounds and the brokenness uh, around racism, around economic disparity, the, the wounds that capitalism has uh, brought on the poor. Um, how can we take that and let it fuel us in our imagination to get creative and to come together to work for some real uh, progress? And, and I think that also in this moment that we are feeling our interconnection in different ways, a virus reminds us that we are biologically connected uh, and impact one another. When we breathe, we impact another person. And this is true before the virus and after the virus. And, and so I think that there are some real things that we can be learning in this moment uh, to build on. So due to the nature of your interfaith work, you, know, you do a lot of bridge building. Mm -hmm. um, and you're used to, I think, you know, having conversations that span different groups. Um, and in the subtitle of your book, Creating Con Connections in Divisive Times, right, couldn't be, I think, more timely. Yeah. Um, so just maybe to you know, take a few nuggets out of that, what have you found to be the most effective ways to speak to people about the election that don't necessarily agree with your views? Yeah. Uh, one, I'll name that it's really dang hard. So I, I think that it's a very, very difficult task. And, and it's made more difficult because it feels like we live in different worlds and we see different realities. We are consuming different information. And, and I think that, that, that the worlds that we live in are curated and cultivated to further polarization. And, and so just naming that that is a genuine obstacle. And, and so trying to figure out how to bridge that information divide that is shaping our lens and view of the world is a task that we, we need to spend some time thinking about. Personally, um, I have found, and I am in relationship with a lot of people who view the world very differently. And one of the ways that feels most effective to me is to start with heartbreak. And, you know, I, I love Parker Palmer's writings and teaching about he was just talking about that. I just did an interview with him on the subject and that's exactly what he brought up too. Yeah. And healing the heart of democracy, Parker yes. is really formative for me, honestly. And, uh, and he talks about like the heartbreaks and I actually have a little excerpt of that in my book um, that when our heart breaks, it can break open uh, and soften us or it can break and shoot shrapnel out into the world. And uh, part of our task in this time, I think is the opportunity to um, feel our own heartbreak and to be vulnerable with one another and express that heartbreak. And, even, you know, with the most conservative people I'm in relationship with, politically conservative, uh, they also feel sad and, and sad about the state of the world and sad about the deep divides and the ways that the divisiveness is tearing our families apart, tearing our communities apart, uh, causing real destruction. So that's one of my hopes that if we can move to those places, uh, then we might be able to find some openings. The other space is tapping into imagination and 
hope or what do we what do we long for um, in our communities at the smallest level what do what do you need to feel loved to feel connected to thrive to feel safe and and to be able to have conversations in that place some things that don't work are you know really getting stuck on Trump's personality um, on the things the wild things that he says and does uh, I think that that's a huge distraction um, and horrible and heartbreaking, but ultimately um, one points to the deeper illnesses that lie within us, uh, but also keeps us from actually addressing the real issues that we need to face. So um, back to kind of the pragmatic aspect of the election coming up here. Yeah. Uh, from a policy perspective, what do you see as the most, you know, important uh, out of many opportunities for uh, for policy development, you know, within the next um, administration? There's so much. <laughs> um, so it, it is very much an overwhelming um, list, but. I think that one uh, is around confronting racism and doing like actually having a policy nationwide to build a commission to do the work of truth and conciliation and healing. I think that there is a festering wound around uh, our history that we need to actually look at. And if we look at the different countries who have been able to find healing uh, around the history of slavery, and racial divides, there's been an intentional effort. So that's one. Uh, and then other, and then also backing that up with some policies. I think the things that we hear the most often are, all, are accurate from my experience on the ground working in communities who have the deepest needs. And those are around healthcare. Uh, when our healthcare system is so broken and you know, built to make a profit off of people being sick, and that's a, a real problem that we need to take a look at. So healthcare, housing um, policy to assure, I think that the homelessness here in Denver and across the country is a huge issue. And realizing that homeless people don't cause homelessness, that housing is what helps support people in uh, having that baseline stability to be able to move um, out of homelessness and all of the problems that come with it. Um, and connected to that is re-looking at our economic policies and realizing that the deep economic divide and disparity and inequality will continue to fuel all of the other problems that we're facing. Um, and for me, we won't be able to address economic inequality until we change our philosophy. And this is what I'm really passionate about, which I don't know exactly how to, to get to yet, but this is what I'm most curious about is how do we actually start to realize that we are connected and that my well-being is tied to yours and economically and materially that requires a shift of resources and power and that I will actually do better when the person on the street has enough housing, healthcare, and food to be able to survive, um, that we are connected, that 
I don't keep consuming and living in my bubble of comfort while someone else um, is not able to have a roof over their head or food in their belly. So, you know, the policy, yes, but underlying that we have some fundamental work to do in how we see one another. I couldn't agree more. Um, very tough issues, but it's really the crux of the matter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, with the election coming up, um, beyond just encouraging people to vote, um, what other steps would you suggest that just general lay people take in order to affect positive change through this? Yeah, and I think that this has made a little bit more difficult with coronavirus because a lot of times it would be, you know, get out and um, go knock doors and, and do the work of engaging in democracy. I think it looks a little different today. Um, but yes, absolutely vote. And realize that this is long haul work of civic engagement. And one of the things that I've noticed in this time is that our neighborhood actually is in a lot deeper conversation. And we all, we sit outside in our lawn chairs and, and relax together at night, especially when things were completely locked down um, because we're not going out as much. So I think there's an opportunity in this time to do a lot of that local work in your own community with the people in your network, engage in the conversations. I think that's one of the biggest things that we can do is to really talk to one another and not be afraid uh, to be changed by those conversations or to be courageous in those conversations and put yourself out there and test a thought. Um, so I think that's one is to lean in. Uh, the other thing that I think that people can do is realize that this is about more than an election. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we made uh, as people of progressive movements in 2008 was that we thought we elected the first uh, African-American president and we have succeeded and now I'm going to go back to life as usual. And you know, this has been said many times before, but people just checked out. And I hope that this time has been a reminder that we cannot check out, that being an active citizen is a 24 seven um, commitment and 365 and multiple years and be engaged. Follow what's happening in your own local community as and realizing that government happens at every level. Government is not just about our president. Government is also about our school boards and our city council and our zoning board and uh, our state legislatures and uh, each of these different levels of engagement. So I hope that people will uh, stay connected and committed to the long haul work. I hope so too. <laughs> and, 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 you know, good, good observations, right. In terms of, you know, what we can't take all this for granted. Yeah. A lot of us, at least my, you know, speaking for myself, I did that way too long. Yeah. Yeah. So many have. So you're a pastor. Um, what suggestions do you have for religious leaders in terms of what to say, what to do um, leading up to the election? So uh, similar to what other folks, I, I think that oftentimes 
um, especially religious leaders who are working in more purple congregations or um, congregations who think that religion and politics shouldn't be colliding and that you should keep politics out of the pulpit. And, you know, a lot of these are real obstacles that, that pastors face. And, uh, you know, I love some of the metaphors and somebody said it, but I don't remember who, like having one arm, like hugging, holding, um, nurturing people along and the other that's kind of pushing and, and the role of a pastor is, or lighting a fire under people, like you are challenging people and you're comforting people. And if you do too much comforting, then I think you are neglecting a part of your job as a pastor. And if you do too much pushing, then you've just lost folks. And, and so, you know, doing this work through the time of the election and not shying away from the state of the world. I think that if there was ever a time for prophetic leadership, this is it. And prophetic leadership means speaking what you see and having that vision, taking time to step back and try and, you know, uh, cast or tell people what you see uh, and connect that to the stories of our uh, text and our history and our ancestry and also casting a vision for what just communities look like, um, what just leaders look like. And, you know, I think that you can very much do that without naming names, but I think that uh, in engaging in partisan politics, I am very much opposed to jumping on, jumping in bed with a party as a religious leader, but I am very much supportive of being engaged in politics and seeing that everything that we say and do is political and has political implications. And ultimately, our Christian tradition is calling us to love God and love each other and ask us and help us negotiate how to live in the world together. And that's what politics is about. Politics is how we live together, navigating that together. So our Christian tradition has a whole lot to say about how we live together and don't shy away from that don't pretend that uh that religion is not political and that politics doesn't connect to religion it's how we do it that matters we knowing that we don't have to be slinging mud or playing games or uh acting contrary to our own values but we do need to stay in those spaces and be fully connected um, to God and to one another. So um, just to wrap up, uh, what would be like the most um, exciting outcome that you can think of uh, as a result of the election? <laughs> um, I think two, I think one, I think Trump needs to go. And, and I, I think he has um, shown us, our wounds and uh, lit them on fire. <laughs> um, and I think that that needs to change, obviously. Um, and I think the most important thing is that we come away from this election more committed to the long haul work of civic engagement and bringing our voice and our values to our shared life and moving away from this hyper-individualistic um, way of understanding ourselves and our religion and 
uh, politics and move into commitment to our interconnection and building systems that support that reality. Amen to that. <laughs> so Amanda, I want to thank you for joining us. It's really a great opportunity for me to meet with you for the first time and uh, you know, learn more about your work and your thoughts and everything. And let me remind everyone again to check out Holy Chaos. It's a, it's a wonderful book. And uh, congratulations, Amanda, on uh, putting that out. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was a gift to be with you. And I look forward to continued work together. Same here.